This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Illuminating False Identity, recorded March 11th, 2012, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. How many people here have a regular daily meditation practice? I would like to encourage people that don't have a daily practice to try to start the place where truth starts to really show itself. One of the primary reasons, especially after the honeymoon phase of meditation ends, is that we discover that there's a lot of resistance to practice. And the resistance to practice is really what makes it useful. Even subtle resistance to practice. It's only useful, of course, if we pay attention to it. If we just kind of shrug it off and resign ourselves to doing our practice and we never look, then we're missing a valuable jewel right there in the midst of our practice. And that is a little bit of suffering. So this morning I wanted to talk a little bit about suffering and a little bit about the Janani path, which is the path to truth through knowledge. And many folks are attracted to the Center for Sacred Sciences because that seems to be what we're about. But it's really kind of a deceiving in a way because the Janani path is actually a path of devotion to the truth. It's a surrendering to the truth. So we can say that the Janani path is really a surrendering to suffering. Suffering is our path. It's the way we get to the truth. Without suffering, we wouldn't have a path. So this, this whole idea of suffering then is profound when we look into it. But we don't like suffering. We don't want to suffer. And that's precisely why it is suffering. We turn away from it. It is the resistance to our own suffering that creates the suffering. It's sort of like how fear operates. When we're afraid, it's the fear of fear that is operating. But you could really sum the whole thing up by saying that suffering is craving. Craving for something more, to feel better in some way. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is this little quote, which is, This constant enemy of the wise keeps wisdom hidden. It appears as desire. It is an insatiable fire. When we are suffering, we don't like it. We desire to be away from the suffering. 
insatiable fire. It takes over. So we never get to really experience what the true nature of the suffering is. The reason that we struggle to feel better is that we have certain beliefs about everything. And those beliefs, if we follow them back, like following a thread back to the beginning, we discover that there is a core belief that is creating this desire, that is this desire. And that core belief is me, the story of I, the sense of self. It's the veil to the truth. And it veils it through craving. So even if we have everything in the world that we want, you know, we're a hedge fund manager, and we got lots of cash on hand, we got lots of friends. They want to be friends with you because of your money. Or maybe the, maybe because you're really a nice guy. Who knows? But nevertheless, you have everything. You've got your friends. You have money. You have power. You have a great reputation. Sort of. And there is still this desire to have more. We still want something more. The reason that we want something more is that we don't actually have anything. We think we have, well, we've got bank accounts, we've got friends, but in one moment of not thinking and emoting about that stuff, in one moment, we have nothing. And not only do we have nothing, we are nothing. And in the core of our being, we know that. And we can't bear that. And so we're off, struggling once again. More power, more money, more friends. We don't realize why. We think it's because we're getting stuff. We're accumulating stuff. That's why we're doing it. We're not able to recognize the driving force behind it, and it is fear. Fear of being nothing. What is fear? It is this craving to have something more, to be away from fear. The fear of fear. So we're never satisfied and the reason we're never satisfied is because we have this identity with something which is imaginary that we have to keep struggling to create. Now, when we start any kind of a spiritual path, usually what triggers that path is a recognition of the flaw in this whole thing in the world. We recognize that even though we've struggled and struggled and struggled to be happy, to get away from our suffering, we're still suffering. 
And when we see that really clearly, it dawns on us. It's like, oh my God, life is not what I thought. It's just this drudgery. And I will never achieve anything. I'll never achieve a happiness through anything that I do in my life. And so this experience of futility sets in. It's pretty sad. We don't like it. Ah. But then we come to a spiritual path. We might look in different ways. We go to religious teachings of all kinds. And hopefully we won't get stuck in some other belief system get sucked into. Of course, we'll do that for a while, and if we're paying attention, we'll eventually realize that's not helping us either. But this first initial recognizing that that worldly striving does not bring us happiness, that is when we are on a spiritual path at that moment. We don't make a conscious decision necessarily to be on the spiritual path. It happens to us. We recognize this basic thing that it's not working. Now, if we are lucky and blessed, we will discover a a true contemplative spiritual path. And usually that means we'll have to go through a lot of doctrine and a lot of teachings before we begin to stumble onto mystical teachings. And the mystical teachings will be pointing always to meditate and contemplate. The bhakti path is a path of love and devotion to God, surrender to the divine. And the path of jnana is, as we said before, it's this path of knowledge, moving towards the truth, devotion to the truth, surrender to the truth. And, of course, we make this distinction, as I said before, between the two, but there really is no true distinction. And there are many outward distinctions. You see, yes, this is a, this is a bhakti person. They, they're very uh, pious, and you know, they're into God. And then this is a Janani person, and they're, you know, they're very kind of you know, like Socrates, or they're clunky. But really, of course, they both are comprised of both Janani and Bhakti. Uh, inquiry and devotion. Oh, both of them. They just have different ways of expressing it outwardly. If you go down to the core, what you discover is there are these similarities. In fact, you can't really say that they are different. They both go in the same direction to the same realization, essentially. If we get into something like Janani, because we're paying attention now, we notice that we're still striving and we're still unhappy. Now we're striving for spiritual things. We're looking for good meditation, good mind states, and we recognize the same little problem of not being fulfilled. But the difference here is that in the worldly 
striving, we just go on forever. Of course, it does eventually break down and we begin to see. It might take a few lifetimes, but eventually we see this isn't working. Whereas with the spiritual path, the difference is that as we do the practices, we start seeing something more clearly. And the spiritual practices will come to an end just through the process of seeing. One thing that really helps us there is to realize that we can't actually stop striving. This really helps us in the Janani path. If we don't see that, that there's nothing we can do to stop, then we're really on a worldly path. We need to recognize that if you are striving to stop striving, you are still striving. So this is important to see, and, and so every time when you go, okay, I've been meditating for 10 years now, and I'm expecting to be enlightened any minute. Where is it? I mean, what's going on here? Right there is striving. You see it's striving. And this is useful because we see it. It's not hidden anymore. It's okay. We see it. Okay. Okay, so there's something about striving I need to look at. This is the Janani path. We'll examine our experience. Not ideas about our experience, but the experience itself. Now what we discover is that as long as you don't see striving, in other words, you're acting it out, then it remains your identity. You are the striving. This is what the sense of self is. It's about striving. Striving, grasping, resisting. So we need to really see the striving, our striving. We need to see it. And that means not believing that it is me looking at the striving, my striving. I want to see my striving. This is not helpful because you just, you're just kind of building it up. So you want to witness it. You want to witness what is this striving? Rather than it be my striving, it's the striving, the grasping. The anger, rather than my anger. When we feel angry, notice this is anger. It is pure anger arising. It's not mine. When you look around at other people being angry, it it shows you this is sort of a... It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And it's like certain buttons are pushed. Anger arises. It's the anger. It's not my anger. If I claim it, then that is my veil. So through the Chinani path, we are turning awareness around and shining it back on all of these mind states that arise. So the idea then is to get comfy. Get comfy with observing what you've always identified yourself as. Get comfy with it. 
And that means practice. When you practice, at first it's sort of this drudgery. It's sort of this um, irritation. It's resistance to practice. But what we're seeing is self. Every time there's resistance, then that is self showing itself. And so we're getting comfy with seeing self. Rather than coming from self and identifying everything through the lens of self, we are starting to see those things which make up self. And those things are the grasping, but all the ways that we grasp and all the ways that we push away. So this false identity that we have is a form sort of like, you know how pearls form in an oyster. We have this irritation in the in the oyster. It's, it's like a grain of sand gets in there. You know, and the oyster is delicate and very tender. And this grain of sand gets in there. And the oyster secretes this substance and it coats the grain of sand. And it just keeps doing that. It just keeps doing it because it's trying to get it really smooth so that it's flawless. But it, you know, it's never flawless. It keeps, it'll keep growing and then, you know, you can find them when they're little, but if it's been in there a while, it's going to be pretty good size. They get pretty smooth after a while. They slow down a lot, but there's still flaws in it. Well, this is kind of like what happens in the formation of the self. What we have in the center that, that is affecting this, this delicate sense of, of who we are is nothing. It's that we're nothing, and we know it. And it's an irritation. We can't stand it. And so, it works like this. In the beginning, which is right now, there is this distinction, this little imaginary distinction arises in vast consciousness. A little distinction forms. And in the formation of that little distinction, it's all consciousness, so it's an imaginary distinction. But nevertheless, in the formation of it, an error in cognition takes place. A simple little error. And that error is that suddenly there is a subject that is aware of this distinction as something apart from the observer. So now we have a subject and an object. The subject is me, the story of I. It has no name at this point. It just has a sense Oh, but that's about all we know at that moment. And it's a kind of a bewilderment. And in that bewilderment, there's this anxiety. Because now I'm separate. Before I was just 
Everything was blissful. and There was nothing to be concerned about. And now suddenly there's all this concern. And so we start laying down names, stories, likes, dislikes, beliefs, more stories, and we are creating this pearl. And it keeps growing and growing. And it's the sense of self. The sense of self, this pearl, is trying to make it flawless, but it's always flawed. You know, there's that song about, you know, the, the crack, the electric light. You know. Leonard Cohen. Yeah, Leonard Cohen song, that's right. Yeah, and it's crack, lets the light in. And that's it. There's always a flaw in this thing. And the job of the self is to not see the flaw, to not see the crack. And actually, the crack is huge. The crack turns out to be pretty much everything. It's all a big crack, but we are just so fixated on our stories. It's all just nothing. You see, it always originated with this this, this primordial error in cognition, this in, in space, in consciousness. And once it starts, everything that's built on it is really this, of the same substance as it. It's an imagination. So our world, our entire world is structured on this. And so we look around and we go, yeah, but... It's solid. It's real. These are real. They're real. I'm real. See, it works out really good. It's pretty convincing. But there is something wrong. We keep striving. And that's our clue. This longing for something. If everything were perfect, we wouldn't feel it. We'd be happy with our bank account. But it's empty. There's nothing there. We know that. This is our intrinsic love. This is what consciousness is. You know, we, we divide it up into, you know, the, the bhakti path and the janani path, the path of knowledge, the path of devotion. But those reflect the two qualities of consciousness itself. Love and truth. Love and truth. Truth meaning that which is absolutely true. And that is love. Love and truth are the same thing. We discover this on the Janani path. Sounds like a bhakti path. No. Well, it's a bhakti path too. Either path. We discover this. Love and truth are one. So... What we 
find is that in delusion, love is divided. It's split apart. Not really split apart. It just appears that way to us because we're split apart. We feel separate. But we're not separate. We just feel we are because of our our stories and our, you know, this this perpetual trying to smooth up this pearl. A beautiful pearl, by the way. Beautiful. It's just not the reality. It's an expression of the reality, which is wonderful. But it's not the truth. So we find that love is divided into two things. It's divided into fear and hope. So we experience this fear of being isolated from a world apart. And then we have this this deep memory of what it was before we were divided. And that hope, hope for things to be better. And so, this is a progression of grasping, of clinging. This is how desire, how this, this feverish movement of grasping takes place. We move from fear to hope. Always moving. Trying to bridge the two. We're unable to do it because we're missing the, the real picture. We're missing the cause, the true cause. But the Janani path is this path of devotion to the truth. So we just keep moving and moving through and examining our experience in life. What is guiding us is this longing. This is the heart. This intrinsic love is guiding us. We think we're doing it. But we're not. We don't even exist. Not really. And as we move closer, we we see this more and more. This compassion has grown. This, this deep sense of wanting to know the truth. This longing. And compassion is willing to experience anything to get to the truth. So we just keep moving towards it. If we feel sorrow, then and, it, and it's, it's this great pain, then we are willing to be with this. Because this is what we have. This is what we're given in this moment. And so, we rest with that sorrow. This is compassion. You know, we think of compassion as compassion is to suffer with, you know, thinking in terms of others, to to suffer with other people's sorrow. But really, it starts with our own sorrow. We can never be aware of other people's sorrow if we are not aware of our own deeply. We have to be willing to feel what we can't bear, what the sense of self cannot bear. And so we have practices. There are practices for being with that which we can't stand. You know, we have the practice of bringing, bringing to mind 
an event in our life that brought us great sorrow or was incredibly embarrassing. Or we did something that just absolutely, we just can't believe we did it. It was just so cruel. We can't bear it. And we bring that in. You know, first, we sit, we still the mind, let it rest on our, our object of attention, and let it settle. And then we bring this in. And initially, the mind goes, oh no! But it's compassion that lets us look. And so, yes, we are willing to feel it. And the mind has all these stories. You just let those go. And you just feel, feel the sorrow of having been the perpetrator of that evil deed. This is how we heal. This is a deep healing. And the healing is that, you see, we think we're something separate, and we will always believe that as long as we hold these things apart, these things are suffering. We hold it apart, we are isolated from our own enlightenment, our own truth. Because when we rest in that sorrow, it is transformed. We will see it as it truly is. It may not happen the first time, and of course if we want it to, you see, this is the path. We go, oh, look at that. So then it's, a, it's this humbling process. It's a surrender. You just surrender. You, you realize you have no choice. Surrender. And as we become more comfortable with our own pain, our own sorrow, we begin to notice the suffering of others. We can't help it. We feel it. So suffering, our suffering, this thing that the Buddha knows the first noble truth, suffering dissatisfaction with life. Suffering, the only approach to it that is, actually works is, is this compassionate embrace. And I say works because it lets you actually be with it. So really all of our practices of meditation in which we sit and watch our breath, this is compassion. We're, it's a compassionate movement just to sit and deal with our breath, which we are ignoring all the time. It wants to show us something. It has something to say. But we don't listen. Everything that arises in our life has something to say. It's trying to tell us, to show us. And so, this is compassion when we allow it to be just as it is. It's, it's like we are listening to our experience rather than thinking about it. We are feeling our experience. For example, when we listen to the sorrow that arises when a loved one dies, and we have this, all of this pain, sorrow, we can't stand it. We turn from it. And we don't realize 
this is love that we experience. You know, we hear this. People say this all Oh, your sorrow is, is just love. But we need to experience it. We need to realize that it is love. It really is love. And the only way you know that is by experiencing it, by resting your attention in it and feeling it as it actually is. We recognize how we want to just keep turning away from it. And through this process, seeing in this way, you begin to recognize that this pain that you're having, other people are having it as well, and you realize that your sorrow, when you feel your sorrow and then you feel the sorrow of others, you realize that there's really no difference between them. My sorrow, your sorrow, and this is love. This is compassion. There's really no separation anywhere. And you begin to discover this for yourself through this process. This is the happiness that we seek. Compassion is sort of the, the opposite of suffering. It's, it's giving suffering what it truly wants. All of the stories, all of the striving, that doesn't work. It just keeps the suffering going because it's endless. The whole thing about suffering is it is the desire to achieve something which cannot ever be achieved. This, this resistance to what is. So as we look, we begin to, it's, a, it's like we begin to experience surrender. And it is a kind of forgetting. Like children as they outgrow toys, you know, Santa Claus and stuff. You know, you're, you really like this toy, but you just start to see things that have bigger way. And after a while, that toy, it just doesn't, you don't even see it. It's become invisible to you. So, in closing here, I just want to say that um, both paths, Bhakti and Janani, driven by intrinsic love, are necessary within each path. There's a great quote here by um, Catherine of Siena. She says, Love follows upon understanding. The more they know, the more they love. And the more they love, the more they know. Thus, each nourishes the other. And that sums it up in a nutshell. So now for a moment, let's just close your eyes. Close your eyes and bring your attention to the sensations of breathing. Just for a couple of minutes. This won't take long. Notice sensations arise and pass. This voice arises passes, punctuated by space, 
Notice that whatever arises, arises to itself. It's not arising to somebody. The sense of somebody that's aware, bring that into your attention. Notice it. This is just an emotion, a thought, passing in consciousness. The sense of me, aware, just a thought. These images and feelings arise to themselves in consciousness. They arise by themselves. There is nobody doing it. You are the consciousness in which all of this is arising and passing. Not the little you. That one is arising and passing too. Sticky puts it mildly. It's, it's pretty daunting, actually. What we're up against here, especially at first on the path, is we can't even comprehend. We hear teachings like there's just consciousness, and it's like, oh, really? Huh. Sounds a little fishy to me. And of course, it is. Because we have a pretty good pearl going. You know, it's, it's pretty good. But if we look closely, feel that stickiness, that's what we want to see. The resistance to looking. That's what we want to see. That makes sense? 
Yeah. My experience is really, really different than, than that. I, uh, What's your experience? The, um, the, the social vacancy, that's the term I would... The social... The, the social vacancy, vacancy is the term I would give for what you're attempting to, to achieve. Nothing is nothing's being attempted to achieve here. We're just putting attention on our experience. We're not really shooting for anything here. It's no, there's nothing to achieve. Right, but that, that hope of comprehension. That itself needs to be seen, yes. Yeah, but that, the way I would define that hope of comprehension is a condition of social vacancy. And that the stickiness is a struggle with trying to disentangle the social networking in order to get vacant. But that's actually not what I'm talking about. That's not, that's not what this is about. What I'm talking about is something very simple. It's not, you know, that's, that strikes me as a bit arrogant. Like we're trying to get something. We're trying to, you know, get our ducks all in a row and understand something. What I'm describing is basically allowing whatever is arising in your experience to not ignore it. It's a process of inattention that needs to be looked into. So when the mind ignores something, that's a clue. It's called suffering. So we recognize how we suffer and we just turn and look at it. If we want some kind of a result from it, then that wanting a result is itself our suffering. And so we turn and we look at that. That's it. There's no, there's no end point to this. It's not about achieving something. That's important, and, and we have a hard time with that. Because we want achievement. That's what we want to see. We want to see how we grasp, how we want something. That's what really what the whole thing is about. It seems ridiculous what you're saying. It is ridiculous. Absolutely. <laughs> totally ridiculous. And what is that? The social networking, the social linking, the, the chatterbox that instead of making all these that's so sticky, the chatterbox with all these things to say, to me is is the majestic root of what's different between an insect and a human being. That chatterbox is the source of majesty. It's not something to blaspheme with some kind of remarks about, well, just let's just target. It's really just a waste of time. It's just a nuisance. Oh, hey, you must have missed that little part about the pearl. The pearl, that thing that we're creating in our world, the social networking, all of that. And it's all based on nothing. It's the display, and it's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with it. And that is, that is an important point you make, that, that we don't want to discount the social networking, all of the wonderful things. I mean, I, I work in a hospital. I deal with people every day, a lot of people, suffering people. I try to bring some joy into their lives. If I just was believing that it's all empty and there's nothing here, why would I do that? The point is that it's all about compassion. It's all about compassion. So we love the social networking. We just don't want to be deluded by it. We want to see it as it actually is. That's all.
that makes sense? Not to approach it this way. <laughs> huh? Not to approach it through this kind of cycle babble. <laughs> Look, all I'm talking about is bringing attention to your experience. That's it. You know, we have lots of meditations and ways of talking about it, but that's what it all comes down to. We want to see our actual experience. We want to experience what is here now. Our problem is that we spend all of our energy spinning so that we can't see what is actually here. That's all. And we just want to turn that around. And why we want to turn that around? It's really about just wanting to be with our real experience because otherwise it's suffering. So, in other words, what we think of as suffering, we ignore. And so we go this way. But what I'm saying is that suffering is showing you something. It's speaking to you. It has a message for you. But we can talk about it and how we need to get rid of it. And we have all kinds of ways in our society, all kinds of medications and whatnot to get away from our suffering. The bottom line is we can't escape it. And so if we can't escape it, we might as well get comfy with it. That's the point I make. How how can we get comfortable with somebody else's suffering? By getting comfortable with our own. We come to know our own grief. And then when someone else is having grief, we're right there with them. And we we are willing to be with them. To look in their eyes and feel their experience. Feel it directly. Rather than talking around it, you know, being evasive. We're willing to feel what they feel. And through feeling it in that way, we recognize they are no different than we are. And so we heal this separation, this division. Yes? Um, I really appreciate the way in which you're um, integrating and joining the two paths. I experience that a lot in my life, though I think I probably bend towards more devotion. One of the things I hear you saying that I think you brought together, but I appreciate more clarification, is that in the Janani path and in a path of inquiry and questioning, and in many mystical paths, there is this sense in which what you're witnessing is rising and passing away. It doesn't have substance. And yet, to go into the feeling, to grow your compassion, it must have powerful substance. So to over-question and detach to the point that you're not experiencing is not, in fact, going to build your compassion. No, exactly. And so, would you talk about that? that, Yes. You know, that those need to be nurtured in order to find union with your pain? That's a great question. When we observe phenomena in our life, the social networking, whatever, It's all shifting and changing. It keeps moving. It keeps dissolving away. The only reason we don't see that is because we have perceptions that we keep overlaying it and we hold it. We hold it in memory. But when we really look through these contemplative practices, we see 
transient. We see it deeply. And what that does is it makes it clear what is actually here. We begin to notice that something is here always. And through, through this business of recognizing suffering in ourselves and then seeing it in someone else, it's like we can't discount suffering. We can't. Just, you know, if you, if you, you know, discount it, you're just denying it. You're pushing it away. So if you are recognizing it in yourself, then you can recognize it in someone else. And you're, at the same time, you're seeing that it's all arising and passing. So there is this recognition of wholeness that starts to show itself. You start seeing this clear, open, spacious awareness within your loved one, within that person that you don't like very much. You start to recognize in all of your social situations. When I'm at the hospital, the patients, you know, and oh, there are many disguises. You walk in, the skin is peeling off of their body. There's this, all these odors, and it's it's the one. It's me. I'm looking at myself. So it's 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 this. It's, it's the willingness to see what's here transforms everything. But out of it comes this deep love for everything as it arises. It's an expression of this consciousness of God, whatever you want to call it. It's an expression. And so on my path, which was Janani path, it was the devotional path. And, and it was a devotional path because every two years, for 12 years, I had a huge loss. A loss of a loved one, someone died. And it made me keep looking. I couldn't, I realized early on that this is love, this pain, this sorrow, this love. How can I be with this? Because I was just always wanting to get away. Always, just because it's unbearable. And finally, I just found that the only thing I could do was to be with it. Totally with it. To just be present. And let it wash through. And I just, I remember sitting for days. I mean, I would sit for a few hours, I would get up, get something to drink, go back and sit some more. This is the process of realizing that everything is passing, including your emotions. They're arising and passing, but you have to have the patience to be present with them and to see it, and to see it over and over. And then you drop down, it's, you drop into your heart. And you, you realize, so now, you know, when I'm talking to someone in the hospital that has leukemia or has some and they're dying, it's not other than me. And I and I know that. I feel it. And so I can really be with them. I can embrace them. You know, I can you know, risks are not an issue. I don't feel that there's a risk to be taken. But this is a process. As we go, it just keeps thinning out. The stories and everything show themselves as they truly are. And the stories are wonderful. And you would never have completely experienced that if you didn't allow that sorrow to be very real. It's exactly. a very real story. Exactly. Yes. Despite the fact that it may not, it's, it needs to have its, its reality. Yes. 
yes, it's like a dream. It's like you're having this incredible dream. You don't want to diss the dream. You're in it. And it's a beautiful dream. And you recognize every element of the dream is your own being. It's all you. And so it makes it even, it's a greater expression because it's time. You love. Love is just so easy because it's all you. Yes? When you mentioned, you know, your experience, which I'm familiar with, um, there's only been one time in my life I experienced the loss of a love. It was my husband. And and there are just things that you do. I remember I would... uh, and when I first moved here, he died shortly after, and I didn't know anybody. So my distraction would be, I, you know, do the business part, went to the movie. And no matter what I did, I could be distracted. I always had to come home. I had to drive home. I had to be home at night. And I don't care. You can take pills galore. You can't escape yeah. all grief. And, uh, I mean, you just can't. I, just, that's just one example. And I, well, just and then... I would end up, you know, I didn't, and I would end up just sobbing uncontrollably, and I felt better after that. And I guess was that a way of actually facing it because I would try not to think about it, and this and that, and suddenly I couldn't control any kind of control anymore. And I felt relief after that because I guess I let it wash over me in, in tears or something. I well, heard that before the crying helps. I thought, what did that be? But, you know, when I experienced it, uh, but you can't escape it. No. There was no way, no distraction I ever tried that got, that didn't, as time, you know, was always there. And Good anyway, for you. The distraction is right there. Good for you. Good for you. Because, you see, to the extent that we are able to distract ourselves, that is the extent to which we uh, remain even more deeply deluded. But you can't really hide from anything real. And that's a real experience for you. And so when you, when you have grief, if you push it away, then it will show itself in another form. Oh, yeah. And it does. That's how it works. That's why all the distractions and all that can't work for everything. Exactly. Sufferings you can do things about, but exactly not the huge one. But that is how self keeps itself going. That's how the sense of self became becomes real and stays real. When we push anything away, that it's just like that original error in consciousness. We make it real by pushing it away. We become real. It becomes real in a way that we can't see. So we hide it from ourselves. We can't see it now because we've done a really good job of hiding it. But it's still there. In its own way, it's still there. So what I would say is that, yeah, grief has this power. And had you been doing these practices that you're doing now, you would probably have dealt with that very differently. I was, I was going to the center. I was hanging out with Joel a lot back then. And I, you know, I would just be devastated by my experience. I'd come and I would just... You know, I'd come to Joel, I'd be mad. I'd be just like, hollering. <laughs> and he would give me a little practice to do. And, but mostly his practices were to just go and hang out with my feeling. So that's what I did. And that's really the only thing you can do. And, and it's the best thing to do because that's what you have. And like you said, it's... It is this powerful thing that's drawing you to it. When you allow yourself to be with it, 
then it is transformed, especially if you have a contemplative practice that you're doing. Yes? First of all, I want to thank you for bringing all of this to light because it's, it's so hugely important. Um, and uh, I, I, one of the contemplative practices I think that's helped me a lot on this path is, has been the, the asana, the, the posture, the practice of yoga, um, which is a very good sister to meditation. And the, I think that the thing that is great about yoga, at least the way I teach it, <laughs> is, is, is you know, to embrace the face plan. You know, because you're going to fall down, you're going to wobble all over the place. And, and you know, at the beginning when I started practicing, I get so angry with myself. You know, why can't my body do this? Why can't I do this? And it's the same thing. It's like pushing away the suffering, pushing it away. And all of a sudden, at one point, I'm like, you know what? Just embrace the falling down. You know, it's a beautiful thing. And and, and all of a sudden, you know, this big shift happened. And falling down wasn't suffering anymore. Falling down was just kind of a fun, actually. Not that it's always fun, but it's a fun part of the journey. You know, as much as I hate doing my, you know, emotional and life face plants, um, I think that uh, there's so much to be learned there, and it makes it so much richer. And I'm so much more grateful for, you know, the little sun that peeks out in the middle of a storm. You know, every little thing is, is so huge. You know, so, so the suffering is a big part of it, but I think the suffering sensitizes you to the joy. And it's so, you know, I suffering, I got a great suffering. Yes, but on the other side of the suffering is the joy, and the joy is just bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and it, 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 it comes out of smaller and smaller and smaller things. So it's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. It's amazing. So thank you for coming up. I yeah. have one question. Yeah. I didn't mean to do a monologue. Um, <laughs> but I'm just very excited. Um, so the question I have is, what is the difference between striving and spiritual seeking? Spiritual seeking. Seeking. Oh, none. <laughs> there's no, there's no difference, except for one thing. That when you're striving, usually we're thinking in terms of worldly striving, and worldly striving just kind of goes on and on. Really, you're on the path then too, because you strive and you keep trying to get what you want, and it keeps. Yeah, we maybe we get a little happy for a few minutes, and then it falls away, and then we strive some more. This goes on and on and on. This could go on for half of our life or more. And if we're lucky, uh, we will discover that it's not working. And so we stop doing that, and now maybe we're into spiritual seeking, but it's really not different in the sense that we're still kind of an addict. We want to feel better. We want to get a mind state that makes us happy. And so, fortunately, through spiritual practice, we are, we're gearing it so that we're actually looking at our experience. So we're noticing striving. I talked about this in one. But, and that in itself is uh, our breakthrough, another breakthrough. And then as we go along, more and more, we, we see that this striving on, on the spiritual path has an end. We can awaken through this process. Whereas on the worldly striving treadmill, it just goes on forever until we break off of it, until we see, and really, you know, it's sort of a false comparison because it's all the spiritual path. From the first time we want anything, we're seeking our true happiness.
Yeah, Joel. Just let me add something to that. Looking at it from the point of view of what's the difference between a worldly path and a spiritual path, uh, uh, seeking is always the same, but a, a, in our definition anyway, a spiritual, a worldly path promises you success. If you just strive harder, or here's the way I can show you, and then you'll achieve what you're after. A spiritual path is designed to self-destruct. It's deliberately designed to self-destruct. You will never achieve it, but it's designed to show you that fact. So the so the the, the, the striving is exhausting. It comes to all. So there's a kind of a judo trick involved. Now that's that's assuming that you found the spiritual path that's right for you. It's always it's not the, the, the true path. It's always a fit, just like a key. I've got a you know a key. This is a great key. Well, if it fits this lock, it's useful. But if it won't fit this lock, what good is it? So it has to be that match. But a, 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 from our point of view, what we call let's even be more precise, a mystical path. That is the intention of the mystical path, not to not to, to help you get what you want and achieve things, but to show you. Uh, the futility of just that strive. So when you find it, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> when you find it, you're not seeking it's not necessarily a bad thing. You could even go so far. I would go so far as to say, as long as you're seeking, you won't find it. It's <laughs> <laughs> only when you stop seeking. But here's the trick. Uh, you know, the, the thing about these it sounds easier. The trick is, you, as uh, Todd actually said, you can't stop seeking because you didn't start seeking. You were born seeking. It's happening, whether you like it or not. And if you try, if you seek to stop seeking, that's just another form of seeking. <laughs> but what, what you can do is, that, the, what mystics say, is A, that seeking can come to an end, and then there are practices and te- techniques and so forth that, in a certain sense, exhaust that seeking. So you talk about falling down uh, in, in, in yoga. So uh, uh, one way of looking at this is, if you have uh, someone who's a compulsive runner, they're running all the time, you know, and, and they've heard about sitting, but they've never been able to sit still. They don't know what it is. They have no idea what it is. And, and you tell them, well, just sit down, but they don't know what you're talking about because they're just running, right? So what do you do? Well, one of the things you might say is, well, why don't you try to jump over that fence? So they run, they jump over the fence. You're hoping they're going to trip and fall back, right? Well, they make it over the fence. They're getting good. Now, so you give them a higher fence. So they make it over that. You know, this is when people are successful on the spiritual path. They're attaining these great states and all that. But the teacher is trying to give them something that's going to make them fall down. Then they'll know what sitting is themselves. Then you can't communicate with it. They'll know for themselves. So I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. so there is, there is. It's a relative thing, but there is a relative difference when we talk about worldly pursuits and spiritual pursuits. Uh, it's meaningful to talk that way, even if it's an absolute. Thank you. Anybody else have any questions? Yeah. Uh, and this is related to the idea of witnessing. You said something like, um, you know, when you see anger arise or. I can't remember the other example, so you see it, that is not me. I have a sort of visceral reaction to that way of thinking, because it's like trying to understand the self-responsibility, the personal responsibility. And frankly, when I see that the anger is me, I have to join with that suffering that I've caused myself and others, and I grow in compassion. So 
I'm not sure that some of No, I, I hear your question, and, and what, what I'm getting at is we have, we have um, habitual modes that we go into. Okay. Habitual modes. Now, it's not about shirking responsibility. It's about seeing it. So, so, and what we discover on this path is seeing really is the way that consciousness frees itself. It's not by trying to do anything. But we, we, we set this up so that instead of looking at, at, at anger as my anger, by being, okay, I'm angry, now I want to look at my anger. And when we do that, we're, we're sort of injecting the delusion into it. We're not trying to say, it's not my anger. We want to, it's sort of like a, it's like we have a laboratory and we're bringing this into the laboratory and now we're going to look at it. But we're not, we're not shirking our responsibility. We're not trying to be some way. We're not trying to create some new way that I am. <laughs> That's not helpful. <laughs> so what we want to do though is just see the mechanisms that are at play. And, and to just to see, we can realize that that anger is love. We can realize that. And then it tempers it when the next time we're angry, we can go, oh my God, look at this. And it's, it's humbling. And, and, it's, and the anger isn't, it doesn't have the same bite. And it's a slow process of, of just seeing in that way rather than trying to fix it or you know, some, doing some psychological work on it. Which is, by the way, useful sometimes, but what I'm describing is sort of um, not that kind of work. Yes, Gula. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about the, uh, I guess, the little self or the ego as grasping and aversion and avoidance. And, and you brought in the idea of looking at it from, through awareness rather than looking at it through I wonder if you can go over. Well, that's kind of what we were just talking about here. It's 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 being it's it's allowing witnessing to take place, and I'll just kind of pick up where I was what I was talking about with you. When you're doing witnessing, and you recognize, say, anger or fear or sorrow as the sorrow, the anger. Once you've done that for a while, you get it's like you see it in a in a in a new way. And then when when my anger arises, then you can start to notice that what is extra, what is added on to this naked anger or this naked fear. What is added on? And you begin to be able to discern that. And, and so, basically, it's a witnessing. It's just a naked witnessing of, of self. And that's really what we're about here. This is what we're wanting to see. We want to recognize the story of I in all of the ways it shows itself. I'm not sure that actually answers your question. You want to run it by me again? Well, you just you somehow define the grasping and the aversion yes. as the self. Yes, well, they are. Yeah, they are. Well, and, and you see, that's what you're seeing. When you're looking at these mind states, you're looking at self. You're looking at how it is arising in that moment. Because self doesn't exist as a thing. It exists in this moment, and it's fluid. The, the self, when you, when you got up this morning, when you first woke up in bed, 
That self is, if you, if you look in your own experience, that self is very different from the one that was sitting there eating cornflakes. And it's very different than the one that was driving. If you look, you can see the mind states, the way everything is presenting itself is always new. It's fresh and new. Always. And so it, the only thing that makes it seem otherwise is when we identify with these things. Then we, the mind strings them together. Yes, oh, this is me. Oh, yes, I had that thought. This is who I am. And all of these things, as they arise out of consciousness, we claim them. Ah, yes, that's mine. Yes, that's me. So we're just observing that process. Anyone else? Okay. All right, so... Till we meet again, peace to you all.